first of all, thank you, Dan, for that wonderful introduction. And yes, this is my pulpit. <laughs> and good afternoon to all of you, and we welcome you to the City Club of Cleveland, where we're devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy to thrive. Today is Wednesday, November 29th, and I'm the Reverend Clarence W. Hall, Jr., senior pastor right here at Morningstar Baptist Church. And it is my pleasure to welcome each one of you here today to Morningstar, as well as to introduce this evening's forum that's being held in partnership with St. Luke's Foundation, discussing food justice in Cleveland. Since 2022, hunger and food has worsened among households. As a matter of fact, with one in eight houses struggling to put food on their tables, many have been going without any necessities in their life uh, in order to be able to try to what they can to put food on the table. When you add this to the rising cost of inflation that has put basic necessities like nutrition out of the reach of more families, we all heard food deserts. But tonight, we re-examine this phrase and instead consider the impacts of food apartheid. Food apartheid is a segregationist system that provides those access to nutritional food from those who are denied that very same access due to systematic injustice. This scarcity of affordable and nutritious food has a tremendous negative impact on a community's health and well-being. To move forward, we require a comprehensive solution that addresses all of these impacts uh, in our community. Local leaders right here in the city of Cleveland are making great strides to combat this food injustice. And tonight, we get to hear from some of these individuals doing this all-important work. Joining us on stage today, is Kim Foreman, the Executive Director of Environmental Health Watch. We have Kima Durden, co-founder of Riddall Green Partnership. And then we have Shirley Bell Wheeler, an urban farmer at Revolutionary Love Urban Farm. Moderating the conversation is Marilyn Harris Taylor, Director of Journalism idea stream of this meeting. If you have any questions today for any of our speakers, you can simply text those questions to 330-541-5794. Again, that's 330-541-5794. And a City Club staff member will do their best to work it in the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, Please put your hands together now and join me in welcoming our esteemed guest here today. Thank you, Pastor. It's good to see you again. Thank you so much for welcoming us to your house. I'm Marlene Harris-Taylor with Ideas Stream Public Media, and I'm so honored to be here this evening, this esteemed panel, to talk about this very important topic. Now, the pastor laid out state of uh, hunger, of desperation of people in our community. But we all know, you know, judging by the folks on this panel, that there is progress being made. So I want to start by asking our panelists to talk about where we are, what, they, what their assessment is on the current state of food inequity in our community. We're going to start with you, Shirley. Hi, everybody. As I look at panel here with me as I look out in the audience. You want to hold that a little closer. I'm sorry. As I look at out in the audience and I look um, as the people sitting next to me, I think of a word that I've heard more in this last year than ever before. I think about So I think um, about how we have had changes in the role of the new administration. I think about how there's so many platforms where I'm meeting all of these new people and I'm able to glean this knowledge and information. I'm able to get mentorship and I'm able to be a mentor and I'm able to collectively work on what we have within our own community. So I would say the state of who we are right now is exciting. As we look back, we see um, 
there's a little pressure of why we need what we need right now, but I see hope in the That's awesome. That's awesome. Hope. Hope is awesome, right? So, Kima, what's your assessment on that question of the state of where we are now in terms of food inequity in the area? Thank you. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Kima Durden. I am one of the co-founders of the Red All Green Partnership, uh, located uh, in uh, Kinsman area. Um, when I think about uh, food access and food security, it reminds me of the idea that um, food is the longest relationship you'll have in your lifetime. You know, you, you may break up with a spouse or get mad at your brother and sister. I ain't going to talk to you no more, but you're going to have to engage food every day to survive. Got to eat. Got to eat. <laughs> so we just believe that if you can make that relationship a good relationship, it can increase the quality of your life. And that's, that's really where the where the rubber meets the road is quality of life. I think we all want to be healthy. We all want to live a long, prosperous life. And and food is the gateway to that. And having access to fresh and healthy food is a gateway. Uh, the phenomenon of buying your food from the same place that you buy your lottery tickets, cigarettes, and beer is a new phenomenon new phenomena in America. Uh, the mini markets in their own. Oh, there was there was a time when there was a clear distinction between the grocery store and the gas station. Not as much now. And we just believe that we, we need to draw that line again and say, here's where you get fresh food, here's where you get your gasoline. And uh, because they, they both need you need gas to make your car go, you need food to make your body go. But uh, the quality is not there. You won't have it in so I would frame it like that. Right now we don't have that situation. We still, we're still having some people buy food with same people buy gas. They do, and I've, I've been hearing this this new term, food apartheid, and I think it's appropriate. And the, the transition from that word to food, the, the terminology previously was food desert, and why the language was changed because the desert is a natural occurring phenomenon. It happens when you don't get enough water, you don't get enough wind, and then a desert desertification occurs. But a food, where there's lack of food, is not a natural occurring phenomenon. So the, the definition in itself had to change. And that's why I'm like, apartheid, because the desert didn't make sense because it was not a natural occurring phenomenon. I like that. I want to get into that discussion about food desert versus food apartheid. But I want to give Kim the opportunity to answer our opening question first. So, Kim, you know, you've been out here in the trenches a long time. Well, I guess I still reflect on we raised the conversation from just uh, gardens, gardens to a social justice work with race, food, and justice. That was in 2012 or something, 2013. And to really get people to think about systems, not programmatic, because you can't have a, a sustainable solution that's not systems focused. And we know race plays a role in how things are constructed in our system across the world, right? And so we, we isolate these issues we really need to be thinking about race and systems change and policy. So I think a lot of energy is around equity, right? So then what does that look like on the ground because the system is still equity, right? So I think now uh, there's opportunity though. There are people in communities that have been committed for decades. We want to make that equal of value, right? So now the federal government has billions of dollars. It's a lot to get you here wrapped around nothing, working on articulating as best I can, but it's been difficult. Julian knows. <laughs> articulate this big, big opportunity that the federal government is pouring billions of dollars into communities across the country, and the money is really for environmental justice and disinvestment and frontline organizations, right? And so now we have an opportunity to have the systems change because we have the actual resources to make those changes. And so what we're doing is we've established the Regional Technical Assistance Center, and we are working um, collaboratively in the region to 
can't draw the funds down, get the funds in the right hands, go back to organizations and make sure it's not a money grab, right? Because that money is really for the folks who have been impacted the most by the disinvestment. So when I say an example is there's on my desk up to twenty or thirty million dollars for a project, not spread across the country for one opportunity. And this is going to cut across every department at the federal government. So we're here to build your capacity, connect you to the top, help you get the money, because then we can, as long as we focus on the system change work, right, and bring the right resources to match it up, that can sustain over time. And it's not a small two-year programmatic fix. It's kind of thinking about how to take that investment is not going to happen again and turn it over into sustainable businesses. We'll talk about uh, an awesome program and thinking about changing systems. That's something that we've all been talking about in this community for years. So to hear that there's some dollars coming our way that may actually make that achievable is exciting. We're going to get a bunch of questions about that when we get to the Q&A section of the program. But um, you talk about systems. That's sort of where we were getting at with this conversation about apartheid versus deserts, right? So, Kima, you mentioned uh, that we're changing that language and you like it. But what I'm wondering is, are we saying that it was apart the apartheid was purposeful, or the apartheid happened because of certain factors that just were out of people's control? No, it was very purposeful, um, and, and big ag, uh, big business, uh, dollars and cents drive decision making. And so, in the inner city communities where the larger big box stores were not financially profitable, they they pulled them out. And in other more affluent, affluent communities where you had you know, Whole Foods and all type of stores, they, they popped and they flourished. So it was business driven based on the dollars and cents of, of the project. So we're talking about like when grocery stores close, when, right, right. when Dave's pulls right. out of Colorado, right. for example. Yeah, these are financial decisions. They're not based on the needs of the community. And we get that. And that's why we understand that, that the system in, in itself is in need of repair. And I think that's why we're here. That's what we've committed our life work to, is trying to uh, repair the system. Uh, but there's a converse to that because there's some quotes that have been made that if you can't repair a system, replace it with something better. And, and I think that our work that we've committed to is in, in that side with that. And Kim, you made an interesting comment earlier today when we were talking on the Sound of Ideas. You said there's another reason to change the language and not talk about deserts versus apartheid. You mind talking about that? I guess the implication of deserts is nothing there, right? And so we know for sure there's life in the community, there's commitment, there's people. And so what we've been doing and working towards is making sure we lift the voice of the lived experience because a lot of folks are doing work to change, to do the system change work or work in their communities. And when you talk about community as if it's only about numbers or data or what's wrong with it, it's like leave behind the idea that there are, is actual life and there's actually there's something to lift up and celebrate and then support, right? So we know the story, we know the, the, the stories the, around health and all that, not to discount that, but there's another side to it and having an optimistic view about the possibility of what can happen, but you have to include the folks who are impacted by that. Right. And so we really want to create processes and I'm a facilitator. I don't think nothing, but you know, hope or whatever. I can try to support. But I mean, you said you, you said you grow hope? I grow hope. Okay. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but, but creating spaces that are real, equity is about honesty. It's not about right on So it's like the people with those lived experience need to be part of the process from inception to execution, not in the middle of it, not to have a community meeting. This is a relationship. 
that we're doing that with the food co-op group is centered around the people who live in that community, right? And we make sure that that table and it's been years. They have been working for years on the idea around the ownership model with money, without money. The commitment is there. And that's the kind of stuff that we need to really talk about because people will participate and show up every two weeks for years to make sure that they're participating in, in the change and also connecting that program to policy um, with everyone at the table, with decision makers and residents month after month after month. So that does create some small policy changes with the institution. So that's what I mean by let's not just talk about what's wrong. Let's look at other opportunities. And that's why I said it's a different perspective from the desert conversation because it doesn't sound like it's nothing. Like nothing. But apartheid kind of applies so too that it's something that's being imposed on you. But I know that we do have these um, these areas of hope. And Shirley, you're one of them. Shirley, let's talk about your urban farm and how you have, you know, taken the reins to build something that is providing hope in the community. So I live within walking distance of my farm. If anybody is familiar with the area of where my home is or where the farm is, there was a narrative um, as we were impacted by trauma. So as we think about this, a lot of things, a lot of experiences that we may go through in our communities to have the idea of hope, that you talk about growing hope, to address healing, to create a safe space, just walk down the street and then just see this oasis of green space and flowers, healing aspects of nature, and so just the healing aspect of being able to know where your food comes from and having just the joy in growing. It's so important to us. Hope is it's an important thing. So I, I just um I just really feel blessed to be able to I really had a conversation with a, another grower. He we he spoke about the fact that we are lucky to be able to have soil that is able to be cultivated. And I never thought about that, how lucky and how blessed we are to be able to live in a place that is able to cultivate soil that is able to grow stuff. But also we have a community that is cultivated. We have good ground here in the people that we have and we're able to build upon that hope and build upon that synergy and build upon holding institutions and people accountable and move in the direction that we need to go. Talk a little bit. Can you talk about how you came up with the idea for the Revolutionary Love Urban Farm? Oh, okay. So, Julia mentioned um, Neighbor Up earlier. So, I was at Harvard library and it was recently my grocery store so i have a nonprofit organization elements of eternal movement it uses the arts to impact the community so my framework was about arts and healing and community holistic health but as i was going to these meetings everybody was concerned about the basic necessity of you look at Maslow's hierarchy of need you can't reach this high level of transformation if you don't have your so I said, well, I guess we're growing. Let's get some food going. <laughs> I, I, my family is from the South, so we grew up um, growing the basic crops, and Thanksgiving and collards, and wait to the frost coming, just all the joy of all of that. So Did you just start with a little plot? We start? started on one parcel with three boxes. Now we are um, seven parcels on the 23rd period. And you also, you're very invested in helping people heal through art. Yes. Can you talk about that a bit? Well, um, my undergrad is education. My master's is clinical mental health counseling. So I am a counselor. By nature, I'm a healer and an educator. So art, the way that you're able to express yourself, the way that you're able to communicate themes that maybe are too traumatic to discuss, or maybe you don't have to express it, you can put it in your art. It's very important to me. So as we work with family as we work with children, as we work with everybody to be able to give them the tools to express what they feel eternally and what better place to do it but out the green space. Whether, what place is more healing than being in nature and creating art? That's beautiful. So just one more question before I move on. So you've been in this space growing your urban farm for a while. What are some lessons that you can share with the folks in the audience who might be thinking about doing the same thing? 
what is your why? Why are you getting into it? Because if you're not solidified in your why, I don't know what is going to sustain you because it's not an easy thing. Growing anything, growing a, a child, growing a farm, growing anything is not easy. And if you're not really grounded in what your why is, you're crying on the days when you push you, on the days when the deers came and ate all your cows. <laughs> I think we can all relate to that. <laughs> whatever, whatever things come up, if you're not solidified in your why, you're not going to have the subsidies to push you. So be clear about what you're trying and write the vision and make it plain. And, and have non-negotiables. As you, as you partner with different organizations, as you partner with different institutions, as you park, partner with the city, whatever, whoever you're connected with, be clear about who you are and why you're that way and what are your non-negotiables. And then that way you can collaboratively work with somebody because I have clear boundaries. Well, we can work together, but I have my clear boundaries. So, Kima, I'm going to ask you that same question. Your Whittall Green Partnership, you guys have been doing this for how many years now? Uh, 13. 13 years. So I know that you have a lot of work to share with this group on how to get started, some of the lessons, some of the things you wish you had done differently along the way. Uh, first, I want to thank uh, my brother and friend, Brother Tim Trammell, uh, for, for um, helping us get started. And what was called the Forgotten Triangle, now it's called the Urban Agricultural Innovation Zone, right? Come on. Uh, I'm, giving you, I'm giving you the snaps. I'm giving you the snaps. And I can't thank him enough. And Brother Julian, who's been a longtime friend and supporter of all this work. And I sort of fault him for me being here because he nominated me to be up here today. <laughs> but um, I think I would just, I would take your question and pose a counter question and ask, audience to think about how do we get here? Why are we even having this conversation? And we are the, uh, what's said is the most uh, intellectually evolved entities on the planet versus animal life. But in the animal world, they eat enough, they kill enough, it's enough for everybody. I mean, for their waste, there's no, uh, there's no, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, a landfills for animals, you know, they don't have a landfill. How do we how do we get here? Because until we understand how we got here, we're not gonna really know how to get out of it. But we'll just keep doing the same thing. For those um that come from particularly an African American background through the South, we all know how to farm. At least our grandparents or great grandparents at some point agriculture was a major part of our existence. And how did we lose that? And what was the cost that we paid to give that up? We gave up fresh food for TV dinners, right? So it was all, again, it was driven by marketing, advertising, the push for dollars, you know, the, the mass selling of consumer items. All of those things took us away from the source of our strengths, which was the land. And the land has always been our greatest connection. Because that's what we came from. And so now as we look back, we find ourselves in this quagmire about, man, we don't need that. You know, in some writings they say the sparrow don't have to worry about where he's going to get his next deal. You know, the deer, the rat, like you said, the deer, they're going to find, they're going to eat up our gardens. They're going to find some food. But we, as this intelligent, elevated human species, figure this out. And I think we sell our souls because we live in a in, in a throwaway uh, environment, you know, it's cheaper to buy a new one than to fix it. You know, it's cheap commercial produced environment now that has spilled itself over into the food system. And, and believe me, you know, it's needed because we got to feed the world. But the way it's being done, it's probably not the best model. And if we're willing to be brave enough to think outside the box another way we can do it than how it's being done. So the example I would give in, in the European model, most uh, uh, European cultures don't shop for the whole week. They shop every other day because they can go to a local market and get fresh food just enough for a couple of days and they go back for a couple of days because they have access to fresh food. 
part of our story is that because we grew up or our great-grandparents or great-grandparents grew up in the Depression era, the, the idea of hoarding food became almost a mainstay. So raise your hand if you got if you got a mother or a grandmother or a great-grandmother with a white freezer full of food, right? That, that ain't been eaten in like 30 years. You could probably take one of them tickets and hit somebody in the head with it's so it's frozen so hard you couldn't even even eat it no more. But because that was born out of a I want to make sure I have enough for my family. Right. And that carried over into this whole idea of now I want to you know, the idea if somebody came to your home and you didn't have any food in your refrigerator, they say you poor or you ain't got no money. But that might have been the best way. They say, I don't need food for eight days in my refrigerator. All I need is enough food for two or three days, and I'll go back and get some more fresh food. And then, so what we've done at Red All is we've tried to take this knowledge uh, because most studies say that if a, if a trade or a skill is not passed on within 10 years, it's lost. So we say, how do we re energize the youth to get excited about farming again? Because, you know, when we came in and began to talk about farming, you know, most of us at that time had come either 40, late 40s, early 50s, some approaches 60. We were like, well, we got to give this back to another generation so they could carry it on. What good would it be, what good would it be to build an 18-acre site? And then if one of us, God forbid, if something happened to one of us, it just goes away. We have to have intergenerational wealth which is great food to pass that down to. We need a plan for sustainability. Yeah, what you're yeah, saying. But can we back up for a moment, though, and talk about how you built this 1880? Well, this, this is the story. This is it. It was born out of a need. You know, um, they say, you know, nature affords a vacuum. So if there's an empty hole, it's gonna, nature's going to fill it with something. And it was an empty hole in the And, um, Brother Tim had plans for the community that we're in many years ago for a tree nursery. And when we approached him and we talked about doing this, um, uh, the city got him, got involved and said, hey, if you guys can do it, do it. And, uh, it, was in a, it was in a very tough neighborhood at that time. Garden was the land all cleared out already? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> How did you go about that? It was filled with trash. It was one of the most notorious dump grounds in the city of Cleveland. Uh, when we came on, there were 50 foot pile high of trash. Where individuals, instead of they were doing a demo of a house, they would just dump the trash in the street as opposed to taking it to a dump and paying money for it. And we still fight against that to today. Uh, but it was born out of this, this desire. So, my partner and friend Damien Forche, uh, rest in peace today, is a, a celebration of life for him. He passed uh, five years ago today, uh, so that's bittersweet. Uh, but he was an exterminator in, in uh, public housing, one of the longest minority exterminators in public housing, worked uh, environmental health watch for many years, Stu and Kim. And um, after going into the unit, so there's a saying in public housing that there are only two groups that's allowed inside the projects. That's the mailman and the exterminator. Everybody else is just driving by, but to go inside the units. And when he went inside the units, he was most so touched by the diet of the children. You know, they were eating barbecue potatoes for breakfast or now laters or if anything. And he said, we have to do something. And our, our answer was, let's do Riddle. And so, you know, Riddle, people always say, where'd you get that crazy name from? You know, but it came from an exterminating company. <laughs> Riddle, and we changed the, the name to an acronym to mean Redeem, Integrity, and Determination for All Mankind. Uh, because, like, like Kim said, we're growing hope. We're growing, we're growing people. We're growing lives. We're growing community. And that's our whole mantra. Well, so what was it like in those early days when you were getting started? It was, it was, it was difficult. It was difficult. But we have a phenomenal team at Riddle. Damien. Uh, uh, Randy McShepard, myself, uh, many of the other, we all grew up together uh, from five years old. So we already had a, a, a very close relationship throughout all of our entire lives. So we came into this work with instinct for each other, so there was no 
competing for jockeying for position. I'm, the, I'm in charge. Do this. And, uh, we all knew what we could do, and we all exercised our superpowers very wisely, and it, it allowed us to grow. So you started on this land and needed to be cleared out with so much stuff on it, and you managed to do that. So describe for the folks who are not familiar with the farm what it, what's all there today. It's quite impressive. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, um, so our main focus is uh, training and education. We believe that people need to understand why to make the health choices that they make. You know, why choose a tomato that costs, you know, two ninety nine a pound versus a Big Mac that's 50 cents, right? You can get two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickled onions on a sesame seed bun, you know, for 99 cents. Some of us remember that commercial. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Versus, uh, you know, a tomato or apple that may cost a dollar ninety nine on the pound. But I believe, we believe I read all of that. All of us in the audience, we want the best. It's, can you do access to it and can you afford it? So you have a greenhouse on the site, right? Yes, we have uh, eight greenhouses. Uh, we have a full-scale tilapia production uh, facility where we grow uh, up to 80,000 tilapia fish that we breed. Uh, we have a tree nursery now. Uh, we are a class two compost facility where we bring in up to 40 to 50,000 pounds of food waste every week. And we turn it to our nutritional uh, black hole soil. Uh, we, do, we have our youth programming. Uh, our youth program is really doing well. We just uh, built out a uh, oxygen dome you know, that the youth put together. So exciting because you know just each generation should do better than their parents. And now they, our youth have really taken that mantra on and really taking greenhousing to the next level. Um, so, and I understand you're a model for the country. Like people come here from other cities to visit your site. Yeah, we get about five thousand, somewhere between uh, maybe two thousand to three thousand people to our farm on a monthly basis. And then on top of that, we also operate an indoor produce market called Farmer Jones Market in Maple Heights, where we're able to take all of the produce that we grow and bring it to our market that's now making the scale. And uh, that was an interesting story because uh, really quickly, uh, the mayor of Maple Heights approached us and said, Could you, you know, the owner had been there for 60 years. He decided to close and retire and it left just a big hole in the community. Like, oh, no, don't close Farmer Jones. Everybody knows Farmer Jones. And she said, can we take it over? And we're like, well, we don't got 200000 sitting right now just to buy it, you know. So we had to decline. She said, all right, I'll find somebody to buy it if you guys run it. So the owner came and said, here's the keys. It's like a car. Take it for a test drive. If you keep the keys, I know you want it. If you don't, after a month or two, give up on it. We'll, we'll go our separate way. And four years later, we still got the keys. Driving, so awesome. yes, yes, so yes. Impressive. And, so impressive. and we're awarded Maple Heights Business of the Year award this year. So that was great. That's great. We're, now we're about to begin the audience Q&A. I just want to remind folks up here on the panel. I'm Marlene Harris Taylor, Director of Engaged Journalism at IdeaStream Public Media. For our live stream audience and those just joining us, we're discussing the work being done around food justice. Joining us, Kim Foreman, Executive Director of Environmental Health Watch, Kima Durden, co-founder of Riddall Green Partnership, and Shirley Bell Wheeler, an urban farmer at Revolutionary Love Urban Farm. We welcome questions from everyone, city club members, students, community members, and those of us joining our live stream at cityclub.org. I'm ready for questions now. Can we have the first question? Uh, hi, this is wonderful. Uh, my name is Merle Johnson. I taught school 40 years in Cleveland, so I always want to know about the youth. And I was so excited to hear that you have the youth involved in the Riddall uh, program. Uh, I still have like two questions. You know, where do they come from? Do, like, how, do they get, how, how do they get involved? And my second question is, do you go into schools and uh, teach young people about what you're doing? Uh, yes, we do. Um, we have two youth groups. One is uh, young adults, um, probably from 18 to 25. That's one group. And, you know, 
uh, like more like uh, students. Um, so the majority of people that come, they come to our farm site. Uh, we believe that it's more um, engaging for them to see, for them to get out of the school building and, and really see something different. And the beautiful point is that it's, most of the schools is in their neighborhood, it's in walking distance. So when we first got started, we were getting a lot of requests for tours from your Hathaway Browns and your university schools, a lot of the private schools, and not many from the public school. And uh, we went to say, hey, what's going on? You know, we're all public school graduates, you know, products of uh, Cleveland Public Schools. And then the, the local stu- schools started to come. And it's one takeaway that I'll never forget that a child said to me one day that touched me to my heart. He had said that, uh, he said, sir, I've never been to a field trip where the owners look like me. And I said, wow, that, I mean, to this very day, that still touches me so much because it gave him another idea of, of what's possible, that you don't just have to be an employee. You can be an owner. You can run your own business. You can have your own things. You can do good. And then secondly, um, many of them, we brought one year, we brought every third grader Cleveland schools to the farm over the course of a year. When they came, we said, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? A basketball player, a rapper, all of these, you know, things, you know, and um, by the time they left, they said, I want to be a biologist. I want to be a zoologist. I want to learn about trees. I want to be an artist. So touching because that's that's the work. Because in today's society, and I promise not to be long, but in Today's society, everything is measured by the data, by the matrix. You know, how many numbers, how many people did you serve? How many did this? But there's so many other ways of measuring that doesn't have a monetary association. How do you measure a smile? How do you measure a thank you? How do you measure a hug? And those are things that we do. So thank you. Those things are invaluable. Now, I did neglect to mention that we are text questions as well for our speakers. So if you want to text, the number is 330-541-5794. And we will do our best to work it in. So we are ready for the next question. Thank you all for your wonderful work and your comments. And Kim, I have a question for you. Um, I was very excited to hear you know, what you're talking about, systematic change and all of, all of the federal funds coming in. And I guess my just basic question is, there's going to be an election coming up very soon. And if there is a change in, at the White House, will there be a change in those dollars coming to the community? So I've been traveling to learn a lot more about <laughs> this, connecting with folks connected to the federal government to make sure that we're solid, grounded opportunities. I have launching our regional called the Thriving Communities Technical Assistance where money is flowing. We're launching a regional uh, TikTok um, February, right? And so work with this work and these partners and everything else, we want to make sure we ask that question because it is cool. But yeah, may I ask what's, what is regional TikTok? Well, here we go. So I'm trying to say, so once again, um, Government is setting up EPA specifically in the Department of are the first funds even set up the technical assistance So we have oh, is that what TikTok stands for? Yes, Driving Communities Technical Assistance Center. So we are a group of five lead organizations partnering with Black Green for Region Five, six states that we will be the leads to cultivate and build capacity to the one. But there's also money from intermediaries that get get us right. So it's this whole system being put together over the next to make sure we have a system mechanism. Right? I have not heard that at this point around system money drying up, but there is this um, very urgent situation where the money has to be deployed. So it's been, the it's been appropriated. The money has been oh, appropriated. It's here already. It's, it's a, a new, new uh, administration. It wouldn't be. That's not. Really no, yeah. these are at the department level. But Biden has um, built a 
wonderful news. Next question. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Dinah George. I'm a guest lecturer at Oberlin College, actually, and I teach things about food justice. So thank you for having this panel. Um, my question. Um, my question is: What is the process or thinking around partnerships outside of Cleveland to build out your mission, food justice, food apartheid, and uh, system change? And my other question is specifically for real. I was told that there is a training program. Um, who do I get in contact with in order to enroll in the program? I think it's coming up next year. Uh, yes, second question first. Um, I can give you my direct uh, contact information for the training class. Um, it is on our website, uh, riddall.org. Uh, starting in January, it's our traditional five month training program. It runs the second week of every month, uh, five months from January to May. Uh, registration is now open. Um, so you're more than welcome to register for that. Uh, if you get in, there are some scholarships available to local funders that have supported our work. Uh, so the sooner the better that you can get registered, you know, the better. And, uh, what was your first question? Uh, yeah, I think I want to pick up um, the idea around the partnership um, across the country because we've been working for a long time. And so when we lifted up our rights with injustice, intentionally we brought partners from across the country that do research, that work land acquisitions are working on climate. Um, at the time in Detroit, we were dealing with land grab situation. We brought him in. We brought Will Allen in. That actually um, helped Will all figure out what they were doing. Um, Dara Cooper, many, many folks. The narrative is almost as if we can't find experts around this topic. So what we did, we created a whole I've been Damien since I was Damien and Dr. Rhonda from Social Justice Institute, like, okay, we're trying to have a conference. So that's what we did. We pulled all of these uh, black leaders from across the country that worked on food and brought them to Cleveland, and we matched them up with our local experts because collaboration and partnership is extremely important. So what doing that really got people to think differently about how they do business, how they work, and inspired folks who were trying to do work, right? So that was a multi-sector audience from students to funders to organizations, institutions, academia, and everything else. And we had those conferences in 2013 to 2018. So and we still maintain a lot of those relationships to today. And this collaborative for a decade. And it's very important. Your partners are extremely important. No one can do this work alone. It's so wonderful to hear about this collaboration because so often, you know, people say about Cleveland, the folks are working in silos, don't know what other people are doing. But it sounds like we have some real partners and collaborators just this space. I'll do everything. I'll be like, I want to do this. They're like, okay. So we're going to launch a lot of programs and programs from the farm space and brought people to the farm and introduced them to back partners collaborated from the dumpster issue to fresh fest now, right? So we've been partnering building and scaling for decades. Oh, you mentioned Fresh Fest. That's really a wonderful event. Can you just before we go to the next question, can you just talk about it a little bit in case people are not familiar? Yeah, so over these years we've been doing all Trying out classes, leadership stuff, and health and wellness. So, Fresh Fest, um, it was a culmination of national brand emerging food, arts, and culture. And so, we um, really thought about what's the narrative, as Kima said, about this community. And is it time to bring more culture and art kind of into the space? And it's extremely important. It's black art in the community. So, we really were intentional about black entrepreneurs, food entrepreneurs, retail entrepreneurs to a space, a festival of scale that everybody from local system will also support entrepreneurship food. We also talk about we have a farmer's market. So we integrated all these ideas over the years 
to that space to sell it so they can make money. So there's no social service. Don't need to tell poor people that poor. Make sure that we are intentional about um, bringing people together, not making money. That's great. When, when does that happen? To become um, the second Saturday, September 14th, and we bring national artists to the community, and we're, you know, we have fun. We have the window next I guess. Okay, our next question, please. Hi, thank you so much for your commitment. I'm Jeremy from the East Side. I, I love Fresh Fest. You guys have done a great job. There's um, a lot of zero waste projects in the community. My compost. Uh, all riders drop off bins and food not bomb has shares uh, week where they get donations from Westside Market and bakeries and make sure that uh, food gets distributed instead of wasted. This this year being a farm bill uh, cycle with pass something that'll be in place for five years. Do you think any of the legislations have a chance? I know our representative Chantel Brown has further incentives for nutritious donations bill and there's also the hunger network supports a uh, incentivizing food donations so if you guys could talk about good businesses more okay what did you want to take that one yeah, i could jump in um we also work very closely with um our family and friends uh damn team at spell right we're actually a uh um, compost facility, and the challenge is is a couple of challenges. Particularly uh, recycling program, it really starts at the local level. The cities have to buy in to create a recycling program, which Cleveland does have a fledgling recycling program, which is going going okay. Uh, but again, there's an educational component to it because what to put in what bin, people get a little confused and it's, it's, some separation issues there, uh, but uh, the value is there. And challenge recycling and composting is that we took in all of the food waste that's available in the city of Cleveland, both residential and commercial. There's not a large enough market to consume the end product. So more people buy the compost, we could make, you know, 800 cubic yards of compost, but if we don't have a market to 800 yards of cubic of compost, then this so so you make a great point. Uh, Cleveland is really in the forefront of some of that. Uh, we're in a partnership with Russ Bell with the Westside Market collecting food waste there. Um, we have eight eight, um, eight eight acres that we dedicate just for food waste composting. Uh, so it's very very lucrative. Uh, right now, we're introducing a new product called Biochar uh, that's added to compost to really pick up the nutritional value and, uh, and the, uh, the moisture content of soil. So we're on the cutting edge of it. We're actually in a uh, five-city uh, USDA grant dealing with uh, Biochar. So we're on the front edge of it, working with Russell and um, a lot of work. So glad to hear different cities are together too. Shirley, have you gotten into the space at all? So I get into it in a different aspect um, in educating. You spoke about educating, educating our youth, educating our young people. As we have our summer program with teenagers, um, workforce development, and as we work with schools or we work with young people, elementary school age, just the basics of what competition is, the basics of why it's important, and just basic understanding of what decay is. And why that's important to the ecosystem, and why that um, helps the nutrients of the food that we. So, so how many youth are you? Do you have in the program? So during the summertime, we usually do about um, thirty youth during the summertime each summer. We are also in we do programming inside of schools. We actually got our start at juvenile detention center in 2013, where we really kicked off the nonprofit organization, and we're in schools, elementary schools, and High school. Um, if I had to put a number on it this year, four schools. We're in four schools. I'm sorry, I don't have a number. I'm not. Gonna... <laughs> but I'm four, we're in four or five schools um, this season. So yeah, and then we have the summer program. That's so wonderful. About this focus on the next generation, 
Next question, please. So I hear two words that come up, right? Education is systemic. And I remember when I was in school two years ago, you were taught how to cook, right? And one of the issues that I see, I'll stop by distribution centers, food banks, and all the meat would be gone. The greens would be gone. But all the nutritionally dense food is still there. There is food there, right? I think the challenge is that, one, we have whole generations that don't know how to cook anymore. And if they do know how to cook, I mean, when I was a kid, I cooked it, it tasted good. So I wanted to eat my vegetables. And you got Sister Carol, who almost turned me into a vegan, because that sister can burn from nine be four-legged protein. So my question to the panel is, should we really be talking about getting those types of trainings, right, the trades, the cooking, back into the schools, not as an extracurricular after-school program, but as part of the core curriculum that our kids need to learn those Bring back home ec. <laughs> Absolutely. So as a former CMSD employee, I wanted to answer this question. As somebody who has a fair amount of children, I wanted to answer this question. Um, so, yes, it's important to teach people how to cook. Carol White, she's been out to the farm. She cooks for our events. There's Wash Hoop. Amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. So, yeah, so I think, one, we need to highlight. This is one aspect of the food system. We need to highlight all aspects of the food system because there's other people like Carol who are amazing chefs and amazing, amazing cooks. As far as getting into schools, I think that would be a wonderful um, point. But before we do that, we need to have good food that they're eating. I don't want to say too much, but I mean, if you've been in the schools and seen the food that they're eating, how are they? They're not the food is cooked at the school. So how would they be cooking in the classroom when the food isn't cooked in the kitchen at the school? So we first have to address that and fix the, the system so that as we have this produce right here, this wonderful produce, as we have Carol White shine bright in different um, organizations and chefs like that, that we're able to, we have the resources to feed our children good. Our, if, if children, our children are our most vulnerable population, the most important, they are our future. And what are we feeding them? It's, it's scary. I'm not going to go on, but it's scary. <laughs> You're right. There was a time that they used to cook actually yeah. as a school, but not anymore. I just have one thing to add because part of our youth farmers leadership program in Infresco, we actually create, we created cooking classes from, from vegan and vegetarian and took what we got because people didn't know what to do. Handing out vegetables, all these things, nobody knew what to do. So that's where that came from, but also realizing I went to East and most of the youth are, they really wanted to participate. So as we were deciding on how to put this together, we had a, a vegan, young vegan chef who's now trying to go to med school, by the way. Our program. Um, she taught them how to cook and we taught people how to recycle vegetables. Because once again, we're working on system change. In the meantime, we live in this food apartment space. Elevate which how you shop at Save How do you shop at Aldi? And then in the cooking classes, they were they were working together as a company within the class. And they actually had to stay home dirty. So he worked with his wife, he worked with Carol, and introducing the community to black chefs who did not serve meat. And it was purposeful, intentional. So the youth, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm still building my organization. Oh, hopefully. <laughs> It brings to sustain stuff like that. Bring that because I feel like that model that deal probably serves over hundred people, youth and adults through these series of sessions in Whit Hill and in uh, Central Kingsman, and it was successful. But we want to have enough capacity to c- 
story. It's like you have a great idea, a great program, but how to then find a way to make it sustainable? Keep one close comment on that question is that um, um, what I took home back in junior high school, and we learned how to cook home ec. I made a tic tac toe pillow and hold back. I think it's I still around the house somewhere. Sew, yeah. <laughs> All the letters are off now, but that was part of the curriculum. But at the same time, they took gardening out of the schools. They took home ec out of the schools. Double prong. Because now the people that the students didn't know how to grow or what to do with it, they did. Part of it is that that that, that uh, the pressure to reintroduce those skills back into the schools, and the trend has been to to eliminate the vocational skills because we had auto shops, that woodworking, you had all of those things that was once available. Now that's not available. And now we're asking our children to go to college to seek a degree in most areas they'll never even be able to get a job in. But at least for the folks that had a trade that knew how to do something with their hands, you know, today if you take a query or a group of young students and ask them what a pair of pliers are, most of them may not even know or how to change the light bulb. Like, Let me Google it real quick, you know, and that's the mindset how society has changed, but there was a part in our history that was part of the school curriculum had to take home and, and you had to take the gardening class. You know, these young people, they go on YouTube. They learn a lot of stuff on YouTube yeah, oh yeah, real no quick. Doubt. Let's go on to our next question. Hi, Juliana. I want to say quick hi to the We crossed paths. Um, do you remember? I rode my bike over to Burton Elkhart, uh, something Earl Pike had organized. Um, two things I've been paying attention to for at least the past 10 years are the Riddall Farm and the Opportunity Corridor. Um, <clears throat> I'm concerned about that intersection because upon the completion of the Opportunity Corridor, certain powers of E proposed putting an asphalt plant on Holton Avenue, which is tracks from Riddle. So my question is, and then I quickly get out of the way, is how do you protect that region, that food enterprise region that indeed is not the Forgotten Triangle? Thank you. Yeah, we pushed back on that big time and still are. Uh, we have stakeholders in the community that, that believe in that as well, that that business model doesn't fit well for the urban agriculture innovation. So it's so funny. This is the funniest sidebar of the uh, opportunity corridor. You know, when the idea first came to the community, it was like, no, it's wrong. You know, they taking up the community. They put the freeway through the black neighborhood. And then when I found out after they built it, how much time it saved me to get to work, I was like, I love it. <laughs> and I thought, no, I'll forgive you for that. But it's true, but uh, as a part of that effort, though, Coastal uh, Construction Company, which is the lead contractor, as part of their give back to the community, uh, we had created Damien Forche's Damien Forche Learning Center. We converted one of our greenhouses into an indoor learning center. And the job core built uh, some very, very beautiful octagon picnic tables, eight of them had built. And Kokosni Construction Company poured a concrete pad inside of the whole house. And uh, so as a result of that, we're very thankful for the input that came back from that project. Uh, but um, the whole idea is um, you know, just finding a way to partner with community organizations, you know, finding out what works, what doesn't work, you know, um, being sensitive to the needs of our community, because it's so often uh, groups go into communities with, with the idea they know what the community needs without even asking the community what they want. That's, that is a great point. That is a great point to end on, actually. And so this brings us to the end of our discussion, this wonderful discussion tonight. Can we have a hand for our panel? Thank you to Shirley, Kima, and Kim for joining us this evening for our conversation about food justice in Cleveland. Today's forum is part of our Health Equity Series, sponsored by St. It's also part of our City Club and the Community Series in partnership with Bank of America. The City Club is grateful to each 
these organizations for their continued support of these important community conversations. Up next at Fort City Club is another free forum, this time at the Happy Dog in Cleveland's Gordon Square District. The city, the city Cleveland CFO, Ahmad Abanaba, and Councilman Seif will unpack what's in the city budget, discuss how it's drafted, and what you need to know and can do as engaged citizens. Center for Community Solutions, William Carter Jr. will moderate that conversation. You can learn about these forums and others at cityclub.org. And this brings us to the end of today's forum. I thank you again to our guests. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club. I'm Marlene Harris-Taylor, and this forum is now adjourned. Thank <laughs> you.